Hello, my darling, and welcome to today's story time. The Dunwich Horror. In the meantime, a quieter, yet even more spiritually poignant phase of the horror had been blackly unwinding itself behind the closed door of a shelf-lined room in Arkham. The curious manuscript record or diary of Wilbur Whatley delivered to Miskatonic University for translation, had caused much worry and bafflement among the experts in languages, both ancient and modern. Its very alphabet, notwithstanding a general resemblance to the heavily shaded Arabic used in Mesopotamia, being absolutely unknown to any available authority. The final conclusion of the linguists was that the text represented an artificial alphabet, giving the effect of a cipher, though none of the usual methods of cryptographic solution seemed to furnish any clue. Even when applied on the basis of every tongue the writer might have conceivably used, the ancient books taken from Whatley's quarters, while absorbingly interesting, and in several cases promising to open up new and terrible lines of research among philosophers and men of science were of no assistance whatever in this matter. One of them, a heavy tome with an iron clasp, was in another unknown alphabet, this one of a very different cast, and resembling Sanskrit more than anything else. The old ledger was at length given wholly into the charge of Dr. Armitage, both because his peculiar interest in the Wetley matter and because of his wide linguistic learning and skill in the mystical formula of antiquity and the Middle Ages. Armitage had an idea that the alphabet might be something esoterically used by certain forbidden cults which have come down from old times and which have inherited many forms and traditions from the wizards of the Saracenic world. That question, however, he did not deem vital, since it would be unnecessary to know the origin of the symbols if, as he suspected, they were used as a cipher in a modern language. It was his belief that, considering the great amount of text involved, the writer would scarcely have wished the trouble of using another speech than his own, save, perhaps, in certain special formula and incantations. Accordingly, he attacked the manuscript with the preliminary assumption that the bulk of it was indeed in English. Dr. Armitage knew, from the repeated failures of his colleagues, that the riddle was a deep and complex one, and that no simple mode of solution could merit even a trial. All through late August, he fortified himself with the massed lore of cryptography, drawing upon the fullest resources of his own library, and waiting night after night amidst the arcana of Trithemius's Polygraphia, Giambattista Portius, De Ferdivis, Literarum Notis, and other 18th century treatises, including such modern authorities as Blair, von Martin, and Kluber's Cryptographic. He interspersed his study of the books with attacks on the manuscript itself, and in time, 
became convinced that he had to deal with one of those subtlest and most ingenious of cryptograms, in which many separate lists of corresponding letters are arranged like the multiplication table, and the message built up with arbitrary keywords known only to the initiated. The older authorities seemed rather more helpful than the newer ones, and Armitage concluded that the code of the manuscript was one of great antiquity. No doubt, handed down through a long line of mystical experimenters. Several times he seemed near daylight, only to be set back by some unforeseen obstacle. Then, as September approached, the clouds began to clear. Certain letters, as used in certain parts of the manuscript, emerged definitely and unmistakably, and it became obvious that the text was indeed in English. On the evening of September 2nd, the last major barrier gave way, and Dr. Armitage read for the first time a continuous passage of Wilbur Whatley's Annals. It was in truth a diary, as all had thought, and it was couched in a style clearly showing the mixed occult erudition and general illiteracy of the strange being who wrote it. Almost the first long passage that Armitage deciphered, an entry dated November 26, 1916, provided highly startling and disquieting information. It was written, he remembered, by a child of three and a half who looked like a lad of twelve or thirteen. It read, Today learn the Aklo for the Sabbath, which did not like it being answerable from the hill and not from the air, but upstairs more ahead of me than I had thought it would be, and is not like to have much earth brain. Shot Ellum Hutchins collie jack when he went to bite me, and Ellum says he would kill me if he'd asked. I guess he won't. Grandfather kept me saying the dough formula last night, and I think I saw the inner city at the two magnetic poles. I shall go to those poles when the earth is cleared off. If I can break through with the Dohana formula when I commit it. They from the air told me at Sabbath that it will be years before I can clear off the earth. And I guess Grandfather will be dead then. So I shall have to learn from all the angles of the planes and all of the formulas within. They from outside will help but they cannot take body without human blood. But upstairs looks like it will have the right cast. I can see it a little when I make the vorish sign, or blow the powder, and it is near like them at May Eve on the hill. The other face may wear off some. I wonder how I shall look when the earth is cleared, and there are no earth beings on it. He that came with the Aklo Sabbath so that I might be transfigured, there being much of outside to work on. And that was all. Morning found Dr. Armitage in a cold sweat of terror, in a frenzy of wakeful concentration. He had not left the manuscript all night, but sat at his table under the electric light, turning page after page with shaking hands, as fast as he could decipher the cryptic text. 
had nervously telephoned his wife that he would not be home. And when she brought him a breakfast from the house, he could scarcely dispose a mouthful. All that day he read on, now and then halted maddeningly as reapplication of the complex key became necessary. Lunch and dinner were brought to him, but he ate only the smallest fraction of either. Toward the middle of the night, he drowsed off in his chair, but soon woke out of a tangle of nightmares, almost as hideous as the truths and menaces to man's existence that he had uncovered. On the morning of September 4th, Professor Rice and Dr. Morgan insisted on seeing him for a while, and departed trembling and ashen gray. That evening he went to bed, but slept only fitfully. Wednesday, the next day, he was back at the manuscript and began to take copious notes, both from the current sections and from those he had already deciphered. In the small hours of that night, he slept a little in an easy chair in his office, but was at the manuscript again before dawn. Sometime before noon, his physician, Dr. Hartwell, called to see him and insisted that he cease work. He refused, intimating that it was the most vital importance for him to complete the reading of the diary, and promising an explanation in due course of time. That evening, just as twilight fell, he finished his terrible perusal and sank back exhausted. His wife, bringing his dinner, found him in a half-comatose state, but he was conscious enough to warn her off with a sharp cry when he saw her eyes wander towards the notes he had taken. Weakly rising, he gathered up the scribbled papers and sealed them all in a great envelope, which he immediately placed in his inside coat pocket. He had sufficient strength to get home, but was so clearly in need of medical aid that Dr. Hartwell was summoned at once. As the doctor put him to bed, he could only mutter over and over again, But what, in God's name, can we do? Dr. Armitage slept, but was partly delirious the next day. He made no explanations to Hartwell, but in his calmer moments, spoke of the imperative need of a long conference with Rice and Morgan. His wilder wanderings were very startling indeed, including frantic appeals that something in a boarded-up farmhouse be destroyed, and fantastic references to some plan for the extirpation of the entire human race and all animal and vegetable life from the earth by some terrible elder race of beings from another dimension. He would shout that the world was in danger since the elder things wished to strip it and drag it away from the solar system and cosmos of matter into some other plane or phase of entity from which it had once fallen, vigintillions of aeons ago. At other times, he would call for the dreaded Necronomicon and the Demonolatreia, in which he seemed hopeful of finding some formula to check the peril he had conjured up. Stop them. Stop them, he would shout. Those Whatleys meant to let them in, and the worst of all is left. 
Tell Morgan and Rice we must do something. It's a blind business, but I know how to make the powder. It hasn't been fed since the 2nd of August, when Wilbur came here to his death, and at that rate. But Armitage had a sound physique despite his 73 years, and slept off his disorder that night without developing any real fever. He woke late Friday, clear of head, though sober with a gnawing fear and tremendous sense of responsibility. Saturday afternoon, he felt able to go over to the library and summon Rice and Morgan for a conference. And the rest of that day and evening, the three men tortured their brains in the wildest speculations and the most desperate debate. Strange and terrible books were drawn from the stacked shelves and from secure places of storage, and diagrams and formula were copied with feverish haste and in bewildering abundance. Of skepticism there was none. All three had seen the body of Wilbur Whatley as it lay on the floor in the room of that very building. And after that, not one of them could feel even slightly inclined to treat the diary as a madman's ravings. Opinions were divided as to notifying the Massachusetts State Police, and the negative finally won. There were things involved which simply could not be believed by those who had not seen a sample, as indeed was made clear during subsequent investigations. Late at night the conference disbanded, without having developed a definite plan. But all day Sunday, Armitage was busy comparing formula and mixing chemicals obtained from the college laboratory. The more he reflected on the hellish diary, the more he was inclined to doubt the efficacy of any material agent in stamping out the entity which Wilbur Whatley had left behind, the earth-threatening entity which, unknown to him, was to burst forth in a few hours and become the memorable Dunwich Horror. Monday was a repetition of Sunday with Dr. Armitage, for the task in hand required an infinity of research and experiment. Further consultations of the monstrous diary brought about various changes of plan, and he knew that even in the end a large amount of uncertainty must remain. By Tuesday he had a definite line of action mapped out, and believed he would try a trip to Dunwich within a week. Then on Wednesday, the great shock came. Tucked obscurely away in a corner of the Arkham Advertiser was a facetious little item from the Associated Press, telling what a record-breaking monster the bootleg whiskey of Dunwich had raised up. Armitage, half-stunned, could only telephone for Rice and Morgan. Far into the night they discussed, and the next day was a whirlwind of preparation for them all. Armitage knew he would be meddling with terrible powers, yet saw there was no other way to annul the deeper and more malign meddling which others had done before him. On Friday morning, Armitage, Rice, and Morgan set out to motor for Dunwich, arriving at the village about one in the afternoon. The day was pleasant, but even in the brightest sunlight a kind of quiet dread and portent seemed to hover about the strangely domed hills and the deep, 
shadowy ravines of the stricken region. Now and then on some mountain top, a gaunt circle of stones could be glimpsed against the sky. And the air of hushed fright at Osborne's store, they knew something hideous had happened, and soon learned of the annihilation of the Fry house and family. Throughout the afternoon, they rode around Dunwich, questioning the natives concerning all that had occurred, and seeing for themselves the rising pangs of horror, the drear Fry ruins with their lingering traces of the Terry stickiness and the blasphemous tracks in the fry yard. Then there was the wounded Seth Bishop cattle, and the enormous swaths of disturbed vegetation in various places. The trail up and down Sentinel Hill seemed to Armitage of almost cataclysmic significance, and he looked long at the sinister altar-like stone on the summit. At length the visitors, apprised of a party of state police, which had come from Islesbury, that morning, in response to the first telephone reports of the Fry tragedy, decided to seek out the officers and compare notes as far as was practical. This, however, they found more easily planned than performed, since no sign of the party could be found in any direction. There had been five of them in a car, but now the car stood empty near the ruins of the Fry yard. The natives all of whom had talked with the policeman, seemed at first as perplexed as Armitage and his companions. Then old Sam Hutchins thought of something and turned pale. He nudged Fred Farr and pointed to the dank, deep hollow that yawned close by. God, he gasped. I tell them not to go down to the glen. Then I never thought nobody'd do it with them tracks and that smell and the whippoorwills of screeching down there in the dark at noonday. A cold shudder ran through the natives and visitors alike, and every ear seemed strained in a kind of instinctive, unconscious listening. Armitage, now that he had actually come upon the horror at its monstrous work, trembled with the responsibility he felt to be his. Night would soon fall and it was then that the mountainous blasphemy lumbered upon its eldritch course. Negotium, perambulant, and tenebris. The old librarian rehearsed the formula he had memorized, and clutched the paper containing the alternative one he had not yet memorized. He saw that his electric flashlight was in working order. Rice, beside him, took from a valet some metal sprayer of the sort used in combating insects, whilst Morgan uncased the big-game rifle on which he relied, despite his colleague's warning that no material weapon would be of help. Armitage, having read the hideous diary, knew painfully well what kind of manifestation to expect, but he did not add to the fright of the Dunwich people by giving any hints or clues. He hoped that it might be conquered without any revelation to the world of the monstrous thing that had escaped. As the shadows gathered, the natives commenced to disperse homeward, anxious to bar themselves indoors, despite the present evidence that all human locks and bolts were useless before a force that could bend trees and crush houses when it chose. 
They shook their heads at the visitor's plan to stand guard at the fry ruins near the glen. And as they left, had little expectancy of ever seeing the watchers again. There were rumblings under the hills that night, and the whippoorwills piped threateningly. Once in a while, a wind, sweeping up out of the cold spring glen, would bring a touch of ineffable feeder to the heavy night air, such a feeder as all three of the watchers had smelled once before, when they'd stood above a dying thing that had passed for fifteen years and a half as a human being. But the looked-for terror did not appear. Whatever was down there in the glen was biding its time. And Armitage told his colleagues it would be suicidal to try to attack it in the dark. Morning came wanely, and the night sounds ceased. It was a gray, bleak day, with now and then a drizzle of rain, and heavier and heavier clouds seemed to be piling themselves up beyond the hills to the northwest. The men from Arkham were undecided what to do, seeking shelter from the increasing rainfall beneath one of the few undestroyed fry outbuildings. They debated the wisdom of waiting, or of being aggressive and going down into the glen in quest of their nameless, monstrous quarry. The downpour waxed in heaviness, and distant peals of thunder sounded from far horizons. Sheet lightning shimmered, and then a forky bolt flashed near at hand, as if descending into the accursed glen itself. The sky grew very dark, and the watchers hoped that the storm would prove a short, sharp one, followed by clear weather. It was still gruesomely dark when, not much over an hour later, a confused babble of voices sounded down the road. Another moment brought to view a frightened group of more than a dozen men, running and shouting, and even whimpering hysterically. Someone in the lead began sobbing out words, and the Arkham men started violently when those words developed a coherent form. Oh my God, my God, the voice choked out. It's a-going again, and this time by day. It's out. It's out and moving this very minute, and only the Lord knows when it'll be upon us all. The speaker panted into silence. And this, my darling, ends our story time for today. As always, I hope that you have very sweet and creepy dreams.